0: You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glubker. Any of you grow up singing that song out of the hymnal? Quite a few. Do any of you remember what number it was in your hymnal? Fifty-four? It was 196 in the hymnal I grew up in. I know that. Well. Very good. Glad Again, for the opportunity to look at God's Word with you this morning, turn, if you would, to Genesis 32. We are in week seven in a series, a nine-week series, on the life of Jacob called Struggle and Blessing. Struggle and Blessing. The title of this sermon this morning is Wrestling with God. Wrestling with God, which doesn't sound like a good idea, but there's no way around it. Jacob is a wrestler before he was even born in his mother's womb he and his twin brother Esau wrestled and jostled so violently that she she went to a prophet to inquire of the Lord what is going on Jacob's a wrestler when Esau had the older brother got out first was born first before Jacob was his his hand came out clutching onto his brother's ankle as if he was gonna try to bring him back in he's just he's just a grappler He's a wrestler. It continued after he was born even if only figuratively. He figured out a way to to wrestle away the firstborn blessing that should have gone to his brother Esau and get it for himself. He wrestled away the huge stone over the mouth of the well near Haran that the shepherds would move to water their sheep. He did that to impress a girl. He wrestled for wealth and control with his father-in-law Laban and barely escaped with his family and fortune. Jacob's whole life has been grappling and grasping for blessing and favor and success. But this morning, we'll see here in Genesis 32 that there is, there's still someone else that Jacob needs to wrestle with. Well, we read the context for this passage earlier in our service. Jacob has been 20 years away from home, 20 years away from his twin brother Esau. You'd think that a reunion after 20 years apart would be a sweet and joyous thing. I have a brother who lives in North Carolina who I see once, maybe twice a year. And I'm always glad to see him when the time comes. I look forward to it. I shake his hand, give him a hug. It's it's great to see him again. You would expect after 20 years a sweet reunion. But not these brothers. They didn't part on good terms. Jacob was running away because he'd tricked and deceived and stolen from his brother Esau. And Esau, the older brother, wanted to kill Jacob. So 20 years had passed. Now Jacob is coming back. He had left empty handed, empty handed, but not without hope. As he left the promised land at at a place that would later be called Bethel, God had met him and made a promise to him to give him success, to bring him back to the land that had been promised to him. And and God had done that. He'd given him success. He'd prospered Jacob in Mesopotamia, even, even through difficult circumstances and conflict there. And after 20 years there, after Jacob acquires wives and children and much property, God comes to him again and says, Hey, go home. Go back, and I'll be with you. So now Jacob's returning. Twenty years later, wives, children, great flocks of animals, so great that Jacob could rightly be called a rich man. But despite his riches, he still feels vulnerable. He still is vulnerable. If Esau still hates him, if Esau is still bitter, if he still wants revenge, he has the power to take everything away from Jacob. So that's, that's where we pick up here, in the middle, part two, if you will, of this story. Jacob has begun to arrange his family and possessions to, to approach in a, in a series of groups of gifts to, to approach Esau. He strategized that if Esau's still angry, he'll, he'll give him this tribute, these gifts. He's divided the camp into two so that if Esau attacks one group, the other group can get away. Jacob's preparing to meet Esau, but first... He's going to meet somebody else. And this meeting is the key to this story. After this meeting, the meeting with Esau will seem almost anticlimactic. This is the meeting that really matters. So let's let's look at it together. Genesis 32 and verse 22. This is God's word. The same night, he, that's Jacob, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he didn't prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me, your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at your word, there is in Jacob's story a very important message for our story. The thing that you're teaching Jacob here, we need to learn too. And so Father, I pray that you'd help us to see the truth that is here in the story. We would understand the way you are and the way that you work with your people. We would understand it, that we would embrace it and believe it And, Father, ultimately, that we would submit to it and obey it for your glory and for our joy in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This story is is both fascinating and frustrating. It's fascinating because there's so many unusual and remarkable and interesting aspects to it. So many interesting issues and questions that it raises. But it's frustrating because it's so hard to to answer with certainty so many of the questions. The story is in many ways intentionally ambiguous about a number of details. Uh, Who exactly is it that Jacob is wrestling with? And if his opponent is divine, why is he unable to prevail against a mere mortal like Jacob? Why put Jacob's hip out of joint? Why was Jacob's opponent worried about the day coming and the dawn breaking? Why would that matter? Why such a concern for both of them for knowing each other's names? What exactly does the new name Israel mean? Why won't the man tell Jacob his name? Is the man fighting for Jacob or against Jacob? All these questions are difficult, which makes this passage a, a hard one to interpret. I mean, one of the hardest in Genesis, and for that matter, one of the hardest in the entire Old Testament. We, we can't try to tackle all those questions, and we couldn't be absolutely certain of the answers anyway. So what I want to focus on this morning is what we do know in this passage this morning. Because even, even if many of the details are fuzzy, the big issue is pretty clear. See, God has been working in Jacob's life for a long time. Leading him, protecting him, providing for him. Jacob is constantly taking matters into his own hands. He's he's wrestling with everybody. You almost get the impression that he's trying to mess himself up. He's always trying to take over, always trying to make things happen, but God has kept him and. Sustained him and protected him even from himself and now Jacob's returning to the land the land promised to his grandfather Abram and his father Isaac and now to Jacob and his descendants and he's coming to the place and coming back to the purpose that God has for him but For this to happen something important needs to change in Jacob Before he comes back to God's place and steps into God's purpose for him, something important needs to change in Jacob. Something so important, a change so big, that God is going to change Jacob's name, his very identity, to reflect it. Jacob needs to become, in a sense, a new person to move into the place and into the purpose that God has for him. Here's why that matters for me and you this morning. If God is going to bring us into the place and purpose that He has for us, we have to go through this same change. We have to learn this same lesson. We need to be changed in the very same way. Now, the path we take to this change won't be the same path Jacob took and our paths in here won't all be the same as each other but the destination is the same the same change needs to happen God is absolutely committed to bringing his people to this place to working in us the same change he worked in Jacob so so let's look at the story here and let's see what that change is. As we look back in chapter 32 Jacob is preparing for what could end up being the biggest day of his life. Twenty years of exile, if you will, in Paddan Aram, are over. He's coming back to the promised land, coming back to his family with his wives and children and possessions. He is, 32.7 tells us, greatly afraid and distressed. You ever had a meeting, an encounter, a visit you were anxious about? Maybe it's someone you hadn't seen in a long time. Maybe it was someone you see all the time, but for some reason, this one is going to be different. This one's going to be hard, and you get anxious, and you get nervous. And Probably most of us have had meetings like that. Well, This meeting's been building for 20 years. Jacob's, Jacob's very life, his very family is at risk. He is greatly afraid and distressed it says in verse 7. So in verses 9-12 through Jacob does the right thing when he's afraid. He prays. He talks to God. He reminds God of both God's goodness that he'd already shown Jacob and God's promise that he would care for Jacob and be with him and protect him and take care of him. And so then what what happens next in the story we're looking at in the middle part of the story might be understood as God's response, God's answer to that prayer. God, you said you'd protect me. You said you'd provide for me. You said you'd be with me. And this, we might understand, to be God's answer. See, tomorrow, Jacob knows he's going to meet up with his brother Esau. It might be a glorious reunion if Esau's the forgiving kind. And it might be a catastrophe if Esau is the vengeful kind. And when Jacob had left 20 years earlier, Esau was the vengeful kind. But before Jacob can meet up with Esau, it says a man comes and meets with Jacob first. He's already sent his wives, his children, his possessions across the river. He's alone. He doesn't have, I feel fairly confident in saying, a flashlight or a lantern or a cell phone with one of those piercingly bright lights on the backside of it. He is in the dark. If there were a city by, nearby, and there wasn't, but if there was, it wouldn't have any ambient artificial lighting either. He's alone. It is presumably very dark. And while Jacob is here, alone in the dark, a man mysteriously shows up. Now, the narrator here, presumably Moses who's writing this, undoubtedly could tell us much more. But man is all it tells us. A man Shows up. We don't know who he is. We don't know where he comes from. Jacob doesn't know either. It, you ever been in somewhere, uh, somewhere out in the dark, somewhere alone, or just some place that's just scary, and you're walking along, thinking to yourself, "If if someone really wanted to scare me right now, I don't know what I would do. I hope my brother's not hiding behind." Or, or maybe you've been that person hiding behind. I've done that too. You've been that person hiding behind somewhere. Right? J- Jacob is here. All of a sudden, there's a man there who he doesn't know, who's there with him, who attacks him. And Jacob's fighting, wrestling with a stranger, and they wrestle until daybreak. I don't know if any of you have any experience wrestling, but it's exhausting. When I was in high school, the wrestling team, when they would start to train, they would be outside running, and you'd see them running and running and running, and you think, you don't run in wrestling, why are they running to train for wrestling? And they're running to build up their endurance because wrestling, even for a short three-minute round, is exhausting. Jacob and this man wrestle all night. We know Jacob's a powerful man, but he can't, he can't beat this stranger. They wrestle and they wrestle and they wrestle through the night, nobody prevailing. And the stranger apparently can't defeat Jacob either. So what does he do? It says he touches Jacob's hip and puts it out of joint. Now some versions will translate this, he struck it as though he punched him really hard in the hip. The, the, this mighty blow that knocked his hip out of socket. Well, but that's an unlikely wrestling fighting move and it's an unlikely translation. The word just means to, to touch. He, they've been grappling all night and when the time comes... The man decides just to touch his hip, and it goes out of socket. It's a touch that suggests not mere physical strength, but rather some kind of supernatural power. The man says to Jacob, let me go, for the day has broken. Presumably the man doesn't want Jacob to know who he is, doesn't want him to see his face Jacob's hip is dislocated, which I've never experienced. It has to be enormously painful. I I think if you are um, wrestling and your hip gets dislocated, I think normally you stop wrestling. My, my brother back in high school, we went to just a little Christian school. I probably shouldn't tell it was a Christian school whenever, before I tell you the story. But uh, uh, my brother wasn't on the wrestling team, but when it came time for the tournaments, this little school, they didn't have everybody for every weight class. My brother's a pretty strong and athletic guy. And uh, so they said, well, will you just come and wrestle in the tournament. And I uh, was so like, yeah, okay, so he, he goes to wrestle. And somehow, uh, I think strategically you're not supposed to do this, but somehow I got out that the guy he was wrestling from a rival school we really didn't like. That's how Christian schools work. They hate each other, you know, they're fighting, and they just real big rivalries. And anyway, and so it had, had a bum shoulder. And so you really shouldn't tell, you shouldn't really tell the guy you're wrestling against that because my brother hit that shoulder so many times. It's like, that's, that's the weak spot, right? But, but normally... If you're wrestling and you, you're badly injured, you got a bone out of socket, an important one like your hip, you stop wrestling, right? Not Jacob. He keeps going. He keeps wrestling. He, he's just who he is. He won't let go. He's not going to stop. He just keeps pressing on. He's starting to realize that his adversary is no mere mortal, no mere man, that there's something special about his opponent. And so Jacob makes a demand, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Well, it's just the story of Jacob's life, isn't it? He's always after blessing. He's always after some kind of favor. He's often, always after some kind of advantage. He's tenacious even here with what appears to be a supernatural opponent. So when Jacob demands a blessing, the man responds by asking Jacob, what's your name? What's your name? We might think the man is just curious, like maybe he's wrestling a stranger too, but I don't think that's the case. What's your name? He says, I meet people all the time. I'm always trying to learn and remember their names. I try. I I met a few people at McDonald's this week that I see there off and on, and and I wrote their names down on my planner so I wouldn't forget next time I see them, which works, but you you don't want to do that right in front of them. That seems strange. Like, what's your name? You know, you wait you gotta wait till they walk away. But I wrote their names down. I wanna remember their names. But I don't think the man is asking Jacob his name out of curiosity. He knows who Jacob is. He asked Jacob's name because the blessing that he's about to give is directly connected to the name. Today we name our kids names we like or that we think sound good or go well with our last name or that are popular, you know, the most popular baby names of two thousand and nineteen. And, and the name we pick may have a meaning, and it probably has some etymology behind us that tells us where that name came from, but it usually isn't a big part of why we pick the name. For, for example, my wife's name is Kelly, which evidently means warrior woman, which works, I get it. But but I don't think her parents picked that name because they wanted her to be a fighter. You know, she's she's just a scrapper, and that's what we want out of our daughter. So what could we call her? Now they they just like the name, right? The fighter part's just been the bonus. Um, but in the Bible, names had a clear meaning. The meaning was obvious in the name. Right? You don't have to. You know, the name Kelly means warrior woman in like Celtic or something. But in here, the names were obvious. So, so, for example, Jacob's older brother comes out and he's all red, and they name him Red. Esau in their language, but it's not like people were saying, well, what does Esau mean? They know what it means. It means red, because he's a red guy. So when Jacob is asked his name, he's telling something about his identity. A lot about it, Actually. He says, my name is Jacob, Yaakov. But, but what they hear in that language is, my name is grasper and deceiver. That's my name. And as it turns out, that's his story. What's your name, the man says. My name is grasper. Deceiver. striving to get. That's not a name. It's not an identity to be proud of. So the man says something startling. You're going to have a new name. You want a blessing? I'm going to give you a new name. You get a new identity, Jacob. And and we start to get the sense that this was the point all along. He says your name will no longer be called Jacob, grasper, deceiver, But Israel, God fights. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob has been given this new name Israel because he's striven or fought with God and with men. But, But the name Israel doesn't so much mean fights with God, but rather God fights or God rules. You know, Jacob has made his way in the world by being a fighter a wrestler. He's fought dirty. He's deceived. He's manipulated. He's stolen. But he's fought his way to a measure of success. Now he's coming back to the land, back to the family, back to Esau, his brother. His own power and scheming isn't going to be enough. It just isn't going to be enough. And it just isn't the way that God works in and for his people. That's just not the way God works in his people's lives. That's not the path to God's blessing. Striving, scraping, fighting, grasping for everything you can get. See, here's the kind of blessing that Jacob probably would have liked to have gotten. Suppose that as they wrestle, he wrestles with the man and says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And the man says, okay, fine. You got a big day tomorrow, scared. How about I turn you into a giant? We'll call you Goliath. Everyone will be afraid. And then Jacob, instead of following behind all his family and servants and possessions, he could be out in front, terrifying everybody. Yeah, then it would have been a good day. No need to worry about Esau now. That's the kind of blessing we crave. Make me powerful. Give me everything I need, then some. Give me success. Yeah, it make me strong, powerful, secure, so I can fight my battles and win for sure and provide for all my needs. That's, that's the kind of blessing we want, right? So we pray that God will give us lots of money to buy what we want and need, uh, lots of health so we don't face any limitations. We pray for peace in our relationships so we won't have stress and anxiety and disappointment. We grasp and struggle and fight for all these things, all these blessings, like Jacob did, so we can set ourselves up for blessing and happiness and success. But it's not the kind of blessing God gives to Jacob, and it's not the kind of blessing he's looking to give to us. He doesn't give Jacob superhuman strength and power to fight and win all of his battles. Instead, God gives Jacob a new name, a new identity, God fights. God will fight your battles. And that blessing doesn't come, it does not come with extraordinary strength and power. It comes with a limp. It comes with a limp. Jacob can no longer rely on his own strength. He must rely on the God who fights for him. Think about how he's going to approach Esau, right? No doubt he would love to approach as a giant, as a towering warrior surrounded by mighty warriors fighting with him, right? If, if Esau was vengeful, Esau would show up with his 400 men and he would be assessing Jacob's situation and if we engage in battle, we will. both sides are saying, can we succeed, right? But Jacob's going to come to this battle not with power and strength. He's going to come to this battle with a limp. He's not... Going to look like a dangerous opponent at all. Which is exactly where God wants him to be. Do you remember the story hundreds of years after this one, but in the lives of Israel, God's nation? after they're back in the land and they're ruled over by judges and they they keep turning from God and foreign countries come in and oppress them and one of the countries comes in and and, uh, Gideon, a man named Gideon, is raised up as a judge and he's going to fight and try to to throw off and a mighty army comes in from the east. Uh, We don't know how big, but it's huge. They come in and he he calls, sounds a call to arms and 32,000 soldiers come. The other army is at least four times that big. And the army shows up, and God has called Gideon to lead the army, and 32,000 men show up, and God says to Gideon, Oh, that's way too many. That's way too many people. And Gideon thinks, like any soldier would think, How how can we have too many soldiers? How can we have too many soldiers? This is close quarters, hand-to-hand combat. The more soldiers we have, the better. God says, No, 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 that's way, 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 way too many. If you win with this many people, you think you won. Uh, You think you did it. Um, So tell the people, tell the soldiers that if anybody's afraid or just wants to go home, that they can go. He says, all right, if you're afraid and want to go home, you can go. And of his 32,000 soldiers, 22,000 soldiers say, I'm afraid, I'm going home. Now he's left with 10,000 soldiers against 100,000 plus. God says, "Mm, still too big. Still too big. Oh, the more soldiers, the better. I says, no, 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 too many. So they devise this test, bring them to this water hole, and depending on which way they drink the water, we'll keep the ones that drink this way, we'll get rid of the ones that drink this way. So they go, and when it's all said and done, only 300 soldiers drank the right way. God says, okay, we're going to keep those. That 300, that's about the right number. It doesn't make any sense at all. You, you, you've decimated our army, God. And then what does God do? He takes an army of 300 soldiers and routs their enemies. And God gets the glory for a battle won in His power and in His strength. God says, if, you, if I just make you powerful and strong, you'll, you'll start to think you did it. You'll start to think your success came from you, so I'm going to make you weak. And then you'll know that your power comes from me. Look, it's no different with me and you. It's no different with me and you. If If money solves our problems, and let's be honest, we think it will. If money solves our problems, we'll start looking to money every time trouble comes. And if money does solve our problem, we'll give thanks to money. And we'll pat ourselves on the back and say, it's a good thing I'm good at getting money. If health or physical strength solves our problems, we'll start looking to that to meet all of our needs. And if it does, we'll give thanks to health and physical strength, and we'll say, good thing I'm in such good shape. If intelligence solves all our problems, we'll start to marvel at how intelligent we are and we'll look to our intelligence to figure things out or our skills or our cleverness or or whatever it might be. If it's anything but God, we'll start looking to that and we'll start giving thanks for that and we'll start depending on that and we'll start thinking that's the answer, the solution to my problems. And it has always something that has to do with me. That's not the identity God wants for us. That's not the truth of the way it is anyway. The identity that God wanted for Jacob and for us is this. Listen, your God fights for you. Your God fights for you. He's the one we're looked to, rely on, give thanks, trust in. And he may very well give us a limp so that we don't pretend to ourselves we can do it ourselves. You remember Apostle Paul? In 2 Corinthians 9, he talks about how he had received a a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan that tormented him, and he struggled with it. And we don't know exactly what it was, it could have been a, some kind of physical ailment. That's probably the most likely. If we really had to guess, we'd say maybe something with his eyes. But it could have been some other physical ailment. It could have been persecution and opposition that he faced. It could have been an internal spiritual or, or psychological struggle. But, but whatever it was, it says, it tormented me. He says, in three times, I asked God, take it away. And you can guess what that prayer would sound like. God, I would be way. God, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm on a very important mission for you. You called me to this. I would be much more effective in excellent health. Think how much faster I could go. Think how much better I could do if you would just give me optimal health. And what does God say to him? No, He says no. God says my strength is sufficient for you. God says my power is made perfect in weakness. You'll accomplish more struggling with this thorn, this struggle, and with this trial. Because then you'll rely on me. And, And Paul, you'll see. You'll see. I'll keep coming through for you. I'll keep coming through. Your mission will succeed. It will not fail. You will bring the gospel to these people. And you'll do it in my strength, in my power, for my glory. We have to see what God is saying to Paul and to us here. Our greatest limitation, our greatest struggle, our greatest inconvenience might actually be our biggest blessing if it pushes us to rely on God. If it pushes us to stop fighting in our own power and strength and instead looking to, trusting, and relying on Him. Look, everything in our flesh cries out against that. None of us want to operate that way. I don't. I don't want to operate out of a position of personal weakness and trial and struggle. I'm just like you. I want to operate out of a position of strength. I have all my bases covered. I'm smart enough, strong enough, healthy enough, wealthy enough, capable enough to take care of myself, my family, and everything I need to do. That's where we all want to be. Nothing in our flesh wants to operate out of weakness. And yet, God is with us, as with Jacob, determined to take us there. Determined to give us a limp so that we'll learn to rely on Him. We think, God, I could do more for you. I'd be a better Christian if I was healthier, richer, stronger, whatever. But it simply isn't true. God isn't telling us to go out and look for struggle, trouble, and pain. We live in a sinful, fallen world. It'll find us. What we're looking after, what we're looking for, is God Himself. To trust in Him, even when, even in the troubles and frustrations and struggles. To trust Him with our limp, because it moves Him us to lean on Him. That, that is, That's actually the best place for us to be. It's remarkable, isn't it? The best place for us to be is the place we don't want to go. We want to be self-sufficient. But that's always a mirage. God wants us to lean deeply, intentionally on Him. To trust Him. That's the place where God's unlimited and invincible power kicks in. As this section finishes, Jacob, after the wrestling is over, he says in verse 29, he asks the man his name, and the man says, why do you ask my name? And he blesses him, and Jacob calls the name of the place Peniel, which means "seen God, it's the face of God, really. He says, I've seen God face to face, and my life has been delivered. Jacob realizes now who he's been wrestling with. All his life he's been caught up in struggles with other people. His brother, his father his father-in-law. But those weren't the ones that really mattered. Those weren't the important and significant relationships. The most important engagement, the most important wrestling, the most important relationship is with God himself. That's what's ultimate. That's what matters. We will appear before him someday, face to face, as Jacob and his opponent were we will appear before him and our strivings and wrestlings to please him and make our own way in this world are not what we're going to lean on in that day that's not what God is looking for he will not accept us based on how hard we tried or how zealously we fought what will matter in that day is whether we've trusted and relied on him That's what will matter on that day. It's the message we see in the New Testament when God sends his son. And the call isn't work hard, prove yourself to Jesus, my son. The call is follow me, trust in me, give your life to me. Jesus comes, and lives the life of strength and righteousness and goodness that we were supposed to live but don't and haven't then he dies the death that sinners like you and I deserve to die dies in our place takes the punishment we deserve and how does that come to us how does that forgiveness how does that new relationship that new identity with Christ come you got to prove yourself no no you you've got to renounce yourself you've got to repent you've got to turn and trust in what God himself is doing, God who on the cross is fighting for his people, winning a victory so that all who come to God in faith and trust might find salvation, reconciliation, relationship with God forever. So let me ask you this morning as we finish, what is it in your life right now that you're leaning on? What limp are you dealing with in life that you're, you're trying to figure out a way to overcome it rather than trusting in God to carry you through it? What difficulty? It would be a difficult relationship, difficult financial circumstances, difficult health, I mean, all sorts of things that God permits to come into our lives and and we struggle and fight to beat it and we think, if I can just get past this, then maybe I can do something good and useful and joyful in my life. And God is saying, no, no, it's right in this that God brings us to himself as we lean on and trust in him. It, It may be that the biggest frustration, struggle, pain that you're dealing with right now is in ways you don't feel or sense yet God's biggest blessing in your life, if, if it brings you to him. This isn't an easy path. It's not easy. Hey, we're going to spend a couple more weeks talking about Jacob, but what we're going to see is that Jacob doesn't leave this encounter with God brand new, totally fixed, everything's cleaned up, now he's doing it the right way. He's, he's still going to struggle, just like we do. But at least now he knows. Hopefully you know that the limp that you're dealing with is not something that God means for you to fight through, cast aside and overcome, but rather is your greatest opportunity to lean on God and have him carry you through. Father, I pray that you'd help us. Lord, we, we don't, not, not one of us want to relate to you with a limp, out of a position of weakness and need. All of us want to be strong, healthy, prosperous. All of us want to be in a position of great strength and self-sufficiency. We fear that place of need and dependence. And so, Father, I... I bring that to you this morning, knowing my own heart, knowing my own fear in that regard. And what I ask for me and and for every person here is much grace, much confidence of your love, confidence that, that even the difficult things that we struggle with, you are sovereignly in control of and working out for our good, Lord, there are people here this morning struggling with big things. Their limp is profound. Perhaps they don't feel like pressing on at all. And so I pray for them an extra measure of grace and strength. Father, at the, the end of this road, at the end of this life, there is with you, for your people, remarkable, glorious, indescribable blessing and grace. And so I pray strength, perseverance, diligence to press on toward the prize. I pray that that we would be a people, that Springview would be a church of people who are deeply trusting in you. deeply leaning on you, that we would, against everything our flesh tells us, do we would renounce our own strength and rely on you and your grace so that you might get all the glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for coming this morning. It's been good to be here with you, good to look at God's word together with you. I encourage you to encourage one another and spend some time in fellowship and conversation. Uh, let me send you out with these words of benediction from Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. God bless you.